Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the, in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the USA. Today is, of course, the 3rd of March, 2021. Now, we've been doing this discussion of nitrogen metabolism, particularly amino acid catabolism, and utilization of the carbon from amino acids to drive the TCA cycle, and how that is regulated in the mitochondrion, particularly hepatic tissue, but we're going to expand out to other tissues soon here. We've actually also talked about the pancreas when I think about it, and skeletal muscles. So check that. We've actually talked about three different organ systems. But at any rate, nitrogen metabolism is associated with deacylase reactions. Remember, those are carried out by a family of enzymes known as the sirtuins, which can normally just deacetylate, but in certain sirtuin isoform-mediated reactions, such as those in the mitochondrion, uh, they have very poor deacetylase activity. They have very powerful desuccinylase, deglutarylase, and demalinase activities, to name three. There's actually a couple more, too, like the delipoamide ace, uh, which removes lipoic acid from the lysine amide uh, linkage from the dehydrogenase, particularly pyruvate dehydrogenase, applicated glutarate dehydrogenase, also with branched chain amino acid metabolism. So that's okay. So that's so far where we got to. Now I'm going to continue on this, and I want to clear up uh, what we ended with last time, which was the glutamate dehydrogenase reaction, because um, I want to make sure you understand how this fits into the TCA cycle. So Glutamate actually can be converted to ammonium and alpha-ketoglutarate via a reaction stimulated by ADP and GDP. And, of course, that is the glutamate dehydrogenase reaction. Now, why ADP and GDP would stimulate it is because it's driving carbon into the TCA cycle. So lower levels of ADP and GDP would necessitate more carbon anaplerotically entering the TCA cycle. The reverse reaction is the one that actually takes NADPH and makes NADP so that there, therefore NADPH becomes oxidized, right? And in so doing, uh, you form that amide bond and you make glutamate from alpha-KG to ammonium. Now, that is the one that's stimulated by ATP and GTP. So at high levels, high energy charge, uh, ATP and GTP, you are driving glutamate synthesis. So that's why TCA cycle basically is anaplerotic. You can take alpha-KG and make an amino acid, that is glutamate, and you can run the uh, glutamate aspartate shuttle in and out of the mitochondria, which we've talked about in the past. Now, recall that the GTP, GTP, which actually can just be converted to ATP, GTP is actually synthesized in the TCA cycle via the reaction of succinyl-CoA synthetase, right? I think succinyl-CoA makes succinic acid, uh, and in so doing, generates GTP, right? So an end product of TCA cycle. Of course, we know that ATP is also, uh, I guess I'd call it an indirect product of the TCA cycle because of the reoxidation of NADH and FADH2 that are synthesized. That is, their uh, NAD and FAD are reduced in the TCA cycle because, the, because that whole system is an oxidative system. So you reduce the nucleotides. Those nucleotides are then run through the electron transport chain to make ATP. Therefore, ATP and GDP are end products, right? So high levels of ATP and GDP 
you're going to drive the reaction that is NADPH dependent, that's going to be synthesizing glutamate. And when you have uh, elevated levels of ADP and, a, and GDP, that's an NAD catalyzed glutamate dehydrogenase reaction. That's going to then synthesize ammonium and alpha KG. So I want to clear that up at the beginning. So let's go into uh, this discussion of glutaminase. Glutaminase breaks down glutamine, remember, to glutamate and ammonia. Okay. So glutamate will also yield an additional amino group. And that's what we just described. That's via the uh, glutamate dehydrogenase, which is, again, allosterically regulated by ADP and GDP, right? Now, from there, ammonia gets initially incorporated into hepatocytic mitochondria and ultimately results in the formation of, yes, urea. Urea subsequently leaves, of course, the hepatocyte cytoplasm, and ultimately it becomes excreted in urine. Now, erotic acid can also go that route, uh, but we'll talk about, we'll deal with that later. Let's bracket that off. Now, glutaminase 1 is the mitochondrial enzyme, and it's also indeed found in endothelial cells that will metabolize glutamine to glutamate and ammonia. Now, although glutaminolysis modulates the function of human umbilical vein endothelial cell metabolism, it's not well known why human ECs uh, are doing this reaction beyond what can normally be considered fetal circulation, okay? So the molecular mechanism by which the glutaminase one regulates the endothelial cells in, in, in fetal development has not been well described, but I found a study that showed that the absence of glutamine in culture medium or the inhibition of the glutamine, excuse me, of the glutaminase one activity uh, or, the, or getting the expression blocked by using uh, RNA technology will therefore block the proliferation and migration of endothelial cells derived from the human umbilical vein. That means the human aorta and the human microvasculature will all take a decrease in development. So glutaminase 1 inhibition arrests endothelial cells in the G0-G1 phase of the cell cycle, okay? And it's associated with a significant decline in cyclin A expression. And when you restore cyclin A expression via adenoviral-mediated gene transfer, for example, you can improve the proliferative, but indeed not the migratory response of the glutaminase-1-inhibited endothelial cells. So this means that Glutamine deprivation, or in fact, glutaminase 1 inhibition, also stimulated the production of reactive oxygen species. And that's associated with a marked decline in the enzyme heme oxygenase 1 or O1 expression. So, glutaminase 1 inhibition also sensitizes these endothelial cells to the cytotoxic effect of hydrogen peroxide. And that gets prevented by the overexpression of that heme oxygenase. Remember, that's going to synthesize carbon monoxide. 
So I can say then that the metabolism of glutamine by glutaminase 1 promotes human endothelial cell proliferation and migration and survival, irrespective of which vascular source it comes about. Now, that came out of a paper published in Biochemical Pharmacology in October of 2018. So I'm giving you now a more floor detail of where glutamine and glutamine metabolism is re regulated throughout human um, development and differentiation, all the way back talking about fetal development, okay? Now, I want to tell you a little bit about this heme oxygenase. So heme degradation involves this heme oxygenase enzyme complex, and that requires NADPH, and it requires molecular oxygen. There's two of these HO1, HO enzymes, HO1, HO2. HO1 is inducible. HO2 is constitutive, right? Now, it takes heme and converts it to biliverdin. Also releases ferrous iron, which then binds to ferritin, which can act as an antioxidant, in fact, a cytoprotective. Now, biliverdin gets reduced with more NADPH to bilirubin, and bilirubin itself is also an antioxidant. These are, again, degradative products of heme catabolism, biliverdin, bilirubin. Uh, bilirubin being the red bile, right? Biliverdin being the green bile. Now, another product of heme oxygenase activity is, again, I mentioned carbon monoxide. And remember, that is a vasodilatory gas, okay? It's also antithrombotic, anti-inflammatory, and indeed, in many cases, in many tissue beds, anti-apatotic, okay? So this is where the heme degradation pathway fits into that whole thing I was just describing to you about the glutaminase. Remember I was telling you about that? Heme oxygenase level is altered by the glutaminase activity. <coughs> Excuse me. All right, so let's continue on now. Paper published in the Journal of Cell Molecular Medicine 2017 tells us the following. CPS1, remember that's carbamylophosphate synthetase 1, is the rate-limiting enzyme, of course, in the first step of the urea cycle. It's indispensable enzyme in the metabolism of all that nitrogen we talked about in the human liver, right? Glutamine, glutamate, free ammonium ion, uh, respectively. Now, how, however, CPS1 epigenetic regulation actually involves a promoter. And this promoter is liver-enriched transcription factor. Uh, that's what it's called, L-E-T-F. But the L-E-T-Fs, until this paper was published, weren't really fully described. So in this paper, they talk about the promoter region of the hepatic CPS1 gene. And they cloned that promoter, and then they looked at what using you know your standard reporter genes they looked at what that promoter was able to turn up and turn down and what caused it transcriptionally so one of the letfs they discovered was a hepatocyte nuclear factor 3 beta or hnf3 beta it was actually found to promote transcriptional expression of cps1 in the liver in addition to that this is doing dual luciferase reporter assays uh they were able to show in this paper that there was an essential binding site of the HNF3 beta and it exists in the oligonucleotides minus 70 to plus 73. 
They found two putative binding sites, and both of them were available for this transcription factors HNF3 beta. And they did mutational analysis that showed that the binding site of two uh, for site two of that HNF3 beta was the effective one for transcriptional activation of CPS1 promoter. Um, and that if you did anything to that particular uh, site or to that transcription factor, you significantly decrease the expression of CPS1. So I wanted to get to get that also uh, into um, our discussion. Understand that the reason that CPS1 is synthesized at the level of transcription as a polypeptide after transcription to RNA and then uh, translation to a protein is because of transcription factors that are unique. And this one here I just described to you is the unique one in the liver, human liver, the mammalian liver in general. Now, we also mentioned the fact that CPS1 is expressed in the epithelia in the gut, right? And for a long time, it wasn't believed there was a complete urea cycle in the gut. And likely there isn't. But what CPS is doing in the gut is removing free ammonium, okay? And in the gut, it's most likely that what CPS, the mitochondrial CPS1, not the cytoplasmic one, which is involved in pyrimidine biosynthesis normally, but the one in the mitochondria is actually generating enough um, intermediates to erotic acids, and that's O-R-O-T-I-C, not erotic, erotic synthesis. And that erotic acid ends up in the urine when you have a high level of CP1, CPS1 activity in the small intestine. Now, whether or not that same transcription factor is functioning there is very unlikely it's because that's a liver-enriched transcription factor, as I described to you. But it's very likely there's another transcription factor there. And we don't know yet how it's regulated, but we do know that it probably exists because it's the only other tissue you really find appreciable levels of CPS1. So I want to put that um, into our lectures as well, okay? So let's synthesize this quickly. CPS1 activity is 50% higher in a CERT-5 wild-type versus a CERT-5 knockout mouse. Remember, we mentioned this last lecture. That means that sirtuin deacylation, remember that's a deacylase, not a deacetylase, so sirtuin 5 deacylation of CPS1 improves the activity of the enzyme, and presumably it improves the urea cycle uh, activity entirety. It appears via doing mass spectral analysis now that it's only the lysine associated with peptide, lysine 291, succinylation, that is re uh, this reduced in CPS1. But there was no testing in that paper I mentioned to you about the glutarylation, right? So I talked about succinylation. Remember that mass spectral analyses of three of the lysine residues of CPS1 demonstrated, okay, the entire analysis, that they may be both, but not at the same time, obviously, acetylated and succinylated. And that for lysine 44 and 287, the levels of acetylation and succinylation didn't seem to change significantly when you knocked out CERT5 in the mouse model. EOIPSO, lysine 1291 succinylation level actually increases dramatically in CERT5 knockout. Thus, we can determine that CPS1 lysine succinylation can be reversed by CERT5 in vivo 
And when this removal of succinate occurs, CPS activity incrementally, how much? 15% seems to increase. Now, in 2014, years later, a study showed that CPS1 deglutarylation by CERT5 enhances enzyme activity. Okay, now, this is interesting. So it looks like CERT5 increased activity in mitochondria will promote the urea cycle by removing the succinyl group. And it also shows that CPS1 deglutarylation by CERT5 would enhance the activity. Now remember though, that succinylation level increased dramatically in the CERT5 knockout. And it was in the CERT5 knockout, right? So remember you're getting CPS1 activity is better in the CERT5 wild type. So that means when you diminish CERT5, right, you get less, right? So that means it's sirtuin desuccinylation of CPS1, okay? Improved activity of the enzyme, right? That's basically what it said. Now I'm telling you that deglutarylation by the same enzyme also seems to enhance enzyme activity. So this is a key feature. You have two different now covalent modifications of CPS. Okay, that's what we're telling you on that one particular lysine residue that is controlled by sirtuin 5. So coupling the evidence that sirtuin 5 causes deglutarylation and the functional activation of glutamate dehydrogenase 1, which is essential to cellular glutaminolysis, and that clinically overexpression of CERT5 is significantly correlated with the poor prognosis of colorectal cancer, will obtain that sirtuin 5 deacylation may be a druggable target against some forms of cancer by using an inhibitor of CERT5. That suggests that aggressive amino acid utilization in tumors very likely is promotive of colorectal cancer, cancer, and we already know this from other cancer lineages. Okay, so this is a key feature here that I'm trying to explain to you, all right? So that's the whole story now. It's not finished, but it's the whole story of the fact that when you deglutarylate and desuccinylate CPS1, okay, what you end up with is higher enzymatic activity, higher mitochondrial function. That's what CERT5 is up to, right? All right. So we also talked about where glutamate-CoA comes from. Just to remind you, it can come from tryptophan and lysine degradation through the aminoadipic and ketoadipic acid pathways. Ultimately, of course, glutamate-CoA is converted to an FAD-dependent reaction, which is decarboxylating to make carotenoyl-CoA. Now, carotenoyl-CoA ultimately is converted to planolacetyl-CoA. Okay. So this is a key feature here that I want you to be reminded of, that this functional functionality of these multiple integrative processes of sirtuin metabolism and straightforward physiological nitrogen metabolism are directly linked to liver function. We told you before pancreatic function, right? Turning on insulin synthesis. And soon I'm going to reveal to you it's also very significant in the central nervous system. Okay, so 
if you modify any of their sirtuins, it's very likely that if you lose the deacetylase activity, it's not necessary that you're going to lose the deacylase activity. Because remember that we showed that sirtuin 4 and 5 in the mitochondria have very little deacetylase activity. They have some, but very little. Mostly they're desuccinylating, deglutarylating, and demalinating. And those have very potent effects on things like uh, glutamate glutamine metabolism, as I just said to you, and of course the carbamylphosphate synthase, which yields uh, urea cycle, right? Okay. So a non-acetyl modification, that means, might partially mimic the direct effect of acetylation on chromatin structure as it would be capable of neutralizing the positive charge on a histone protein in the same way as acetylation. Therefore, decompacting chromatin, remember. So another possibility is non-acetyl acyl lysine will mark a totally different change in transcriptional profile. Okay, We were talking now about metabolism, not your metabolism. I told you how acylation affects the activity of the uh, glutamine, glutamate activity, and also the CPS1 activity. I just went over that. Now, take that up one higher level and think about epigenetics. And that's the next, that's the next thing we need to start looking at. Right? Now, paper published in 2020, okay? So just in July of last year, in Human Experimental Toxicology tells us the following. I told you I was going to link this into the central nervous system. Okay, here we go. Now, excitotoxicity, excitotoxicity is a major problem in the central nervous system. And so indeed, excitotoxicity is the presence of excessive glutamate which is normally taken up by glutamate, glutamate transports on astrocytes in the central nervous system. Astrocytes are a form of a glial cell, right? We talked about this exhaustively in the fall. Now, listen to this interesting aspect of this paper. Glutamate transporter 1 is the major transporter on glial cells on the plasma membrane, and it clears more than 90% of the glutamate. Now, Enter sirtuin 4. Sirtuin 4 is a mitochondrial sirtuin, and it happens to be heavily expressed in the central nervous system. It had been shown that a loss of sirtuin 4, doing knockouts in mice, of course, leads to a more severe reaction to a compound known as canic acid, which is an, an excitotoxic agent. And it also decreases glutamate transporter expression in the brain. So in the study I'm talking about now, they wanted to investigate whether the overexpression of sirtuin 4 would be protective against the cytotoxicity in these glia cells, which makes sense based on previous uh, discussion and data that I just gave you. So they overexpressed sirtuin 4 in a glioma cell line, and they treated then with this canic acid. And they did that in order to induce this cytotoxicity, right? 
What they found was that CERT4 overexpression increased cell viability, that's the central nervous system, remember, after canic acid treatment. They also found that reduced glutamate was detected in a glutamic acid assay with the overexpression of CERT4 after canic acid treatment. And that they were able to determine that because CERT4 decreased cell death and indeed decreased cell death by preventing excitotoxicity, which actually causes neurodegeneration. So what their results basically say is that overexpression of the deacylating CERT4 increased the protein levels of the glutamate transporter means it's going to take it's going to take glutamate away from the neuron and put it into the astrocyte which is a glial cell so it increased the protein levels of this transporter and the protein levels of glutamate dehydrogenase and this is even after adding this canic acid treatment and so that excess glutamate ultimately gets taken up by the astrocyte rather than generating excitotoxicity at the neuron. However, though, overexpression of CERT4 also decreased glutamine synthetase levels. So that means that by inhibiting glutamine synthetase, remember what that reaction does, takes ammonium and glutamate, takes glutamine. CERT4 actually then looks like prevents glutamine formation. Now, you know that glutamine is converted to glutamate because of the glutaminase reaction. Did you know that that reaction is most active and abundant in the neuron? It is. So if you have, if CERT4 prevents glutamine formation, uh, glutamine formation and it's converted to glutamate neurons basically what this means is that cert4 prevents acetotoxicity via upregulating glutamate metabolism and so the results probably are demonstrating although this needs to be backed up that cert4 might prevent excitotoxicity and related cell death via reducing glutamine synthase expression and by operating upregulating glutamate transport and glutamate dehydrogenase levels all working in the same direction so it's important to develop all of this understanding maybe for the pharmaceutical companies to generate therapeutics against the excitotoxicity that is common in um, aging brain perhaps through a search for related pathway in the cell. Now, that's why I put that whole thing together for you, so that you see what modern research is telling us, the 2020 paper about these sirtuins now in the central nervous system, okay? So I'm going to let you digest on that. I'm going to, I've got a few more things to say about um, branch-chain up-keto dehydrogenases, uh, but I want to leave that until after um, we stop here and let you think about what I've just described to you about the whole regulation of these deacylases on glutamine metabolism, glutamate metabolism, alpha-ketoglutarate entering the TCA cycle, 
the regulation via GTP and ATP versus ADP and ADP, the relative ratios of NADH and ADPH, and then ultimately whether or not the urea cycle is functioning either in the liver or whether it becomes corrupted in the liver, for and whether or not that's associated with colorectal cancer or whether or not the CPS1 activity itself in the epithelial cells of the small intestine becomes corrupted uh, and that that's what turns on the colorectal cancer because of the sirtuin modification, because the up, up to uh, sirtuin uh, expression. Remember, that's how that, that, whole, that whole business got involved in this discussion. All right, so we're going to stop here because it is time. And again, if you have questions about this, at the beginning, I wanted to clear up the whole glutamate dehydrogenase allosteric regulation. And then after that, I went through this whole process of describing to you the sirtuin mediated responses in terms of TCA, urea cycle, and nitrogen metabolism. And then I ended up telling you about the central nervous system. Very curious about neurons and the astrocytes are functioning at, the, at this uh, excitotoxicity level. The end, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from uh, the very exciting Authentic Biochemistry podcast. Uh, and this is me saying bye for now.